Well, tonight we have the benefit of there not being several months separating these sermons and James. So only a minimal recap will be necessary. Those of you who heard this morning's sermon know that James spent the end of chapter 3 giving his audience an antidote for strife and chaos in the church. We saw the necessity of being able to distinguish between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom has as its fruit purity, peace, gentleness, openness to reason, mercy, good fruits, impartiality, and sincerity. Earthly wisdom, on the other hand, produces bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, fights, quarrels, ungodly passions, spiritual adultery, and pride. Heavenly wisdom, of course, comes from God, and earthly wisdom comes from Satan. And all of the things that we just read about that pertain to earthly wisdom, all of these we could sum up as worldliness. It is earthly wisdom. It comes from the earth. It comes from the world. So it is worldly. So we can view the sermon this morning as having equipped us with this most important weapon in our fight against worldliness. We need to operate by heavenly wisdom as opposed to earthly wisdom. Tonight then, we will see the places where we ought to use this weapon in applying God's wisdom to our lives. The focus of James, of this section of James rather, is a warning against worldliness. It's a warning to those whose minds are ruled by earthly wisdom, to those who are double-minded, to the hypocrites who say they believe in Jesus, but whose deeds tell a different story. These are the tares or the weeds among the wheat that unfortunately exist among the people of God. And the fact that James issues such a warning shouldn't surprise us since every time we study James, we see that he has a passion for making sure that those who claim to be believers actually display the genuineness of their faith through what they do. Because he knows that there are those whose faith is counterfeit and therefore worthless. And so, in keeping with the mercy of God, he seeks to warn those who barely hear the word, but do not do it. There's still time for repentance, and so this warning goes out to the double-minded. So this is the point of this text. Just as we cannot mix heavenly wisdom with earthly wisdom, we cannot flirt with worldliness while calling ourselves the bride of Christ. Again, this text is a warning to those who are double-minded, those who say they are Christians, but by their unrighteous conduct and worldliness show that they are not. This text ought to dispel the notion that we can have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. We can't do this and still be accepted by God. So this text is a call for the fakers to repent. So with that said, let's look more closely at the text. Verses 1 to 3, they read, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the first thing that James does here in his warning against worldliness is single out this very destructive aspect of worldliness, namely 
fights and quarrels among people. So here, James gives a diagnosis of fighting and quarreling and shows us what lies at its root. And many of the elements of earthly wisdom that we looked at this morning will show themselves in this diagnosis. So when James writes about the passions that are at war within people when they fight and quarrel, he uses the Greek word hedonism. That's where we get the word hedonism, those who uh, go after pleasure. So hedonism means sensual delight or the lust or desire for pleasure. So fights and quarrels happen because people want pleasure. They seek it out and they chase after it and they fight for it. Remember this morning when we looked at how some of the fruits of earthly wisdom were bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? Well, let me quote myself. Quote, Note what these two sinful characteristics have in common. The love of self. Someone with bitter jealousy in their heart cares only about themselves. They want what others have with no regard for justice. No regard for the right of God to apportion to each as he sees fit. No regard for the contentment that they should have before God. It's all about me, me, me. And selfish ambition is the same. I want what I want, even what you have, and I don't care who I have to step on and who I have to crush and who I have to injure to get what I want. Forget looking after the interests of others. My selfish ambition drives me forward, right over you if necessary. End quote. So at the root of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is the lust or desire for pleasure. Now let me just say, a desire for pleasure is not wrong in and of itself. We are actually called to desire the things of God and to find our satisfaction in Christ and the rewards that He gives. Even the enjoyment of earthly gifts from God is not wrong. Desiring good food and drink isn't wrong. The desire that a husband has towards his wife isn't wrong. Even the desire of an unmarried man toward an unmarried woman who he would like to marry isn't wrong. I mean, if he didn't have that desire, he would not pursue her at all and the human race would die out. So, don't get me wrong, desire isn't the issue. But desire that seeks to satiate itself outside the bounds that God has set certainly is wrong. Food and drink are good, but gluttony is not. And the marriage bed is good, but fornication and adultery are not. And so desire, when it leads people outside of what God commands, and causes them to fight and quarrel, and causes them to fail to love God and neighbor, it becomes lust and it becomes evil desire. James says that these passions or lusts or sinful desires wage war inside you. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. These passions which are on the war path inside you, they spill out into the actions and behavior of your hands and feet. Just as we saw last week when we look at the connection between the heart and the tongue, whatever is in the heart will come out of the mouth. And also, whatever is in the heart will come out in the actions of the hands and feet. So when your sinful flesh recognizes a lack of that which it lusts after, it seeks it out and it takes it from others, even to the point of murder. 
some of the most heinous acts of murder ever committed on this earth have been the result of someone desiring or lusting after something that someone else had rather than being content with what God had already given them. And speaking of God, the second half of verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, who is James implying that people should ask? God, of course. So James is saying that not only do the double-minded sin when they allow their desires to lead them into wickedness, but they sin by seeking their provision outside of God. They do not ask God for what they want. They do not do as Paul says by praying and letting their requests be made known to God, trusting Him to supply them with what they want and need. Instead, they take matters into their own hands and they do evil in the pursuit of their desires. And then we have verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. To the ones who do ask God for what they want, they don't ask according to God's will. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says this, And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. What this means, friends, is that you can't expect to ask God for something outside of God's will and expect to get it. So you may ask, how do we know God's will? Well, we read the Bible. The Bible teaches us about God's nature and the things which please Him. There are explicit and direct commands in the Bible. And there are also things that we can infer just based on God's nature and the broad principles that He lays out. So for example, let's say you wanted a new car. Well, does that sound like something that you could ask God for? Yes, there's nothing wrong with that. But what if the reason that you wanted the car was so that you could boast in front of your neighbor? Maybe your neighbor likes to make you feel like a nobody. So now you want to get some revenge. Now you're the one that has the fancy car. You're the one that has the newer car than him. Or suppose you only wanted the new car so that you would have a way to pick up girls for ungodly activities. If you read the Bible, you couldn't possibly come away with the notion that God is okay with his people living in these ways. We are not to seek revenge. We are not to boast and seek praise for ourselves. And we are to flee from sexual immorality instead of driving towards it. And so God is not even going to hear your prayer and far less give you what you want. Furthermore, if we go back to James chapter 1, we read this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person does not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the double-minded, even when they think to ask God for what they want, do not ask in faith or in the faith. In other words, they do not ask while being genuine believers in Jesus. Their faith is fake and worthless. And so God does not even hear them. That's John chapter 9, verse 31. We know that God does not even listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
And so fighting and quarreling is the result when people desire pleasure above all else and fail to seek God and His will. The world's wisdom tells men and women to chase after their own happiness and satisfaction over all else. It is the highest thing in life that you can achieve is your own happiness. God wants you to be happy, is what people would say. And sadly, this worldly thinking leads to disorder in every vile practice. Or to put it more simply, worldly wisdom leads to worldliness. Yeah. And so James is saying to those who display these characteristics, be warned. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both Satan and God. You must choose. Verse 4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So here, James likens the worldliness of professing Christians to adultery. And know that when I say professing Christians, I mean those that merely call themselves Christians, but who bear no fruit of genuine salvation. These professing Christians are like a wife who professes to love her husband with sweet words, but in truth, her heart belongs to another man. Her devotion to her husband is fake, and everything she does actually signals love for the other man. Well, as we saw this morning, God does not tolerate that. Our God is a jealous God and will not share what belongs to him with another. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now I'll tell you, this verse has proven to be a difficult one for Bible scholars to interpret. But to keep things simple tonight, I'll give you the view that I think makes the most sense to both myself and the commentator that I consulted on this passage. God yearns with righteous jealousy over the spirit or life that he has put in us. God created man for himself to be his own and to worship and serve him. So no man can say that he has the right to choose a life of rejection and rebellion against God. God owns the very spirit that he breathed into you and he will not tolerate the perpetual flouting of his claim over your life. And so God in his wisdom, justice and mercy has made a way for a select portion of mankind to be redeemed from their sin and thus be taken out of rebellion against him. Through faith in Jesus, God brings the sinner into right relationship with him and satisfies his righteous jealousy. But what of the other portion of mankind whom he has not selected for redemption? Does God satisfy his righteous jealousy with regard to them and the spirit that he has put in them? Yes, he does. Their enjoyment of their rebellion ends with the judgment and then being sentenced to eternal torment in hell. God will not watch forever as those who were meant for his service enjoy lives of wickedness in the service of another. Too many people today have this notion that God gives everyone the right to choose their own way. By this, they actually think that God respects and condones their choosing of other gods but him. But this is not true. 
If you refuse God's offer of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone, God will not allow you to rest easy in the arms of another God. You either belong to Him or you belong to the fire. And God, being the Creator and the one who has caused our spirit to dwell in us, has every right to do this. So then, who can stand before such a jealous God? Who among us sinners is able to be fully devoted to a God who is so holy that he will not share his glory or his possessions with another? If you are not a believer in Christ and the reality of God's righteous jealousy terrifies you, and it should, then that's a good thing. Your conscience is doing what it was designed to do in warning you of the danger that you're in and prompting you to seek an escape. If there's anyone hearing me tonight who knows that they have been deceiving themselves with regard to their faith, if there's anyone who knows that they are still in love with the world and its desires and they have not truly believed in Christ and turned from their sin, then take heart. There is good news here for the double-minded who repent. There's good news here for the insincere and the fakers who stop pretending. Verses 6 to 8. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what we see is that even though God demands the complete and total devotion of the human race, He Himself provides the grace to make it possible. God opposes the proud, yes, but He provides grace to those who humble themselves and believe in His Son whom He is sent to be Savior. I want you to recognize that in and of ourselves, we would have no ability to choose God. Neither will we have the ability to keep ourselves in a right relationship with Him. But God, through the Holy Spirit, like the wind, blows on the heart of the sinner and awakens it and brings it to life. Irresistible grace is given to sinners, compelling them to choose Christ and to come to Christ. And this is all a gracious, sovereign act of God upon the ones to whom He shows favor. And once God lays hold of us, Scripture tells us that no one is able to snatch us out of His hand. And neither will we seek to escape his grasp. That's something that a lot of people get wrong. They'll agree, yes, no one can take me out of God's hand, but I can jump out. That is not true. It's not as if genuine believers can somehow become tired or disillusioned with God and then want to get away from him. No, God keeps the very hearts of his redeemed so that we do not want to leave him. So God who is a jealous God and who expresses his holy jealousy and fury against his enemies, provides the grace to ultimately keep his bride faithful to him. This is really good news for us. So let me talk to the genuine believers for a moment. The redeemed need not fear the jealousy of God as if it would consume us. Rather, because of the jealousy and love of our God, we can feel comforted by it. God's jealousy is the reason that we are saved. It is the reason we are kept. And it is the reason that we need not fear our enemies in the world. For God's jealousy protects His bride. 
Like a husband rushing to the side of his wife to defend her honor and protect her from harm. Christian, you are precious to God. As a man's wife is precious to him, you are precious to God. So to those who know that they have been merely pretending, see the love of God. This protection and security can be yours too. It is offered to you freely. So stop rejecting God. Stop relying on earthly wisdom. It's only leading you into wickedness. Wickedness for which you will be judged. Stop chasing after the world and its desires which are passing away. Submit yourself to God. And stop seeking to be satisfied outside of Him. Stop seeking satisfaction in ungodly passions. In the things that God hates. Reject Satan and his demonic ideologies. What good is it to follow them? He is a liar and the father of lies. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I want you to notice there's an interesting dynamic going on here. Because the very next thing that James says in verse 8, after he says to resist the devil and he will flee from you, the very next thing that he says is, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So notice that simultaneously we have this motion occurring. As we submit ourselves to God and therefore resist the devil, there occurs an active moving of Satan away from us. And meanwhile, as Satan is actively fleeing away from us, we are actively drawing ourselves closer to God. And what's more, God himself is actively moving toward us. So if you can picture this in your mind, when you resist Satan and draw near to God, the distance, you could say, between Satan and you increases at a staggering rate, while the distance between you and God decreases at a staggering rate. If I wanted someone in the back of the church to come to me, I could just wait for them to come. But it would be faster if I also started moving toward them. Now, of course, James isn't talking about literal distance, inches and feet and miles and so on. He's talking about the influence of Satan and his worldly wisdom on you. And he's talking about God and the transformative influence of his heavenly wisdom on you. So when we resist Satan and draw near to God, Satan's influence in our lives greatly decreases as he takes his temptation and flees from us and we move away from sin and unrighteousness and move toward God and the good fruits of righteousness and God in, God's influence on us greatly increases as he moves toward us with the encouragement and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. My point, friends, is that drawing close to God and resisting Satan is very effective at killing worldliness in your life. So how do we resist Satan? And how do we draw near to God? Both of these questions, brethren, have the same answer. We do both by knowing and believing what God has said. Every time that Satan came to tempt Jesus, what did Jesus reply? It is written. So get to know what the scripture says. What it says about God. What it says about who you are in relation to God. And as you do this, your knowledge of God will deepen and you will be drawn closer to Him. And this should make sense to us. How can we be close to someone that we don't know? So, let God speak to you through Scripture. 
while you speak to Him through prayer. This is how you draw near to God while resisting Satan. Notice also that in this dynamic of moving away from Satan and drawing close to God, that you can't get closer to God without also moving away from Satan. You can't get away from Satan without also getting close to God. Here's what I mean by that. You cannot say, yeah, I don't really like all the satanic and demonic stuff, so I'm going to leave that stuff alone. But I don't really want to have any dealings with the God of the Bible either. So I'm just going to keep my distance from both and kind of stay in the middle and do my own thing. It doesn't work that way. Remember what I said at the outset. You can't have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. You can't sit on the fence. You can't stand in the middle. There is no middle. Either you will be in the world and under the authority and rule of Satan, or you will be in the church and under the authority and rule of Jesus. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you think you are neutral in all of this, think again. By your very rejection of the God of the Bible as the only God and the God to whom you owe all allegiance, you show yourself to be in the world and a friend of the world and an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. And lastly, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those who have worthless religion need to recognize that despite their mere profession of faith or their mere proximity to the word of God, their deeds have been evil. They have not been doing the works of God and instead have been doing the works of the devil. Thus, their hands, so to speak, are dirty. And so James admonishes them to cleanse their filthy hands of the unrighteous deeds that they do. In addition to this, James tell them, tells them to purify their hearts. They are to seek the washing of the heart that only comes through faith in Christ. They must repent and change the intentions and thoughts of their heart away from their sinful passions. They must go from being double-minded doubters of God who say one thing and do another to being of one mind trusting in God alone for salvation not doubting God's claim on their life and not doubting the work of Jesus Christ ultimately having saving faith that produces works in keeping with that faith verse 9 then says be wretched and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Scripture tells us that Satan, in addition to being a liar and a thief and a murderer, is also extremely proud. Isaiah 14 says this concerning him. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So those who follow Satan's wisdom make themselves proud and become believers in the great lie that deceived Eve. 
that mere humans could be like God. Satanic wisdom inflates the ego and it takes man in his mind from the position of a lowly servant to that of a king. Note that I say in his mind because in reality we cannot even come close to the glory, majesty and power of the Almighty. And so James, in telling the wicked to repent, implores them to deflate themselves before God and humble themselves. And all of the ungodly enjoyment of sin that defines their lives must be turned to weeping and sorrow over the depravity of their lives. When we recognize sin and pride in our lives, we should do just as Job did and repent in dust and ashes. People in the ancient world, when mourning, would sprinkle dust on their heads. Dust being a symbol of lowliness and humility. And how fitting, for man is dust, since we were made from dust. Now I'm not saying that we need to literally adopt this cultural practice, but the stance of our hearts before God ought to be that of lowliness in recognition of the fact that we are not only dust, but sinful dust. Dust that deserves to be swept away. Yet God is patient towards us. Thus James says at last, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What an astounding statement this is. Listen, James could have simply said, humble yourselves before the Lord, full stop. That would have been enough. This is what we ought to do. We should expect nothing in return for simply doing what we're supposed to do. But no, James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. <clears throat> Listen, God actually promises to reward us for humbling ourselves. And the nature of this reward makes God's graciousness all the more glorious. We are rewarded with exaltation. While Satan and all those who follow him, as Isaiah says, are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit, those who obey God are lifted up. Listen to the words of Paul to the Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is an astounding reward. God will exalt those who willingly and genuinely humble themselves before him so that he can spend the rest of eternity showing them just how much he loves them. Our infinite God wants to take infinite time to display his infinite love on his people. So sinner, wouldn't you rather leave your sins behind? Having seen what riches of grace are offered to you in Christ Jesus, God through his prophet James is bidding you come. Turn away from your self-deception. Turn away from your earthly wisdom. And turn away from your worldliness. Turn away from your worthless religion to trust truly in his only begotten son, Jesus. Know that there is loving forgiveness at the cross of Christ, even for the spiritually adulterous and the worldly.